Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Sarah Adamson, education and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Also joining us today as a co-host is Dr. Aaron Robinson, consultant dermatologist and director of medical education at the Skin Health Institute. Thanks, Sarah and Annalise. It's great to be back again on this relevant and often complex topic, oral mucosal diseases. There's a lot to cover in oral mucosal diseases, so we've broken it into two parts. In part one today, we're going to focus on a particularly common oral mucosal presentation, ulcers. We'll explore common causes of mouth ulcers. How are these diagnosed? How to investigate for underlying conditions? And how to manage them? To help us unpack this topic, we are fortunate to have with us two guest experts, Dr. Simone Belobrov and Associate Professor Laura Scardamalia. Dr. Simone Belobrov is an oral medicine specialist and has been a dental practitioner for almost 20 years. She completed her oral medicine training last year after completing her PhD at the University of Melbourne in the field of oral medicine, with a focus on oral cancer. Simone works at multiple places, including private practice in Hawthorne East, public health at the Royal Dental Hospital Melbourne, and alongside Associate Professor Laura Scardamalia at the Royal Melbourne Hospital Immunobullus and Oral Mucosal Service. Simone is also a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Dental School. Simone has a special interest in mucosal diseases and management of chronic orofacial pain and enjoys working with her colleagues at a multidisciplinary setting to achieve better patient outcomes. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me today. Associate Professor Laura Scardamalia has been a dermatologist for nearly 20 years and is the head of dermatology at Western Health, the head of clinical services at Royal Melbourne Hospital, consultant dermatologist at the Royal Children's Hospital, and a clinical associate professor at the University of Melbourne. She is the head of the Immunobullus and Oral Mucosal Service, the Autoimmune Dermatology Service, and the Adult Vascular Anomalies Service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and is committed to general adult, paediatric, and complex medical dermatology. She established the multidisciplinary oral mucosal service alongside oral mucosal physician, Dr. Tammy Yap, over a decade ago, and very much enjoys working collaboratively to benefit patients seen alongside her dermatology and oral medicine colleagues, including Dr. Simone Belobrov. Thanks for having me here. It's great to speak about this topic with you today. To get us started, Simone, what does oral mucosa refer to? The oral mucosa is the mucous membrane lining that is essentially the skin of the oral cavity. This includes the lips, inner lining of the lips, which is called the labial mucosa, the cheeks, which is called the buccal mucosa, and the hard and soft palates, flora of mouth, the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, that includes the top surface or the dorsal surface, and the surface next to the floor of the mouth called the ventral tongue. In addition, it includes the gums, which is called the gingivae, and the retromolar region located behind the wisdom teeth. So it's basically everything in the mouth that is not the teeth that begins at the lips and ends in front of the oropharynx. So Simone, what makes treating the oral cavity unique? The oral cavity is important for daily function, and so when this is compromised, it has a significant impact on the quality of life. Mucosal diseases can affect any mucous membrane, which includes the oral cavity. In a healthy mouth, the tissues are pink, moist, and asymptomatic. 
I like to think of the oral cavity as a window to the rest of the body as it functions with other bodily systems like the upper digestive system, respiratory tract and the skin. So diseases of the oral mucosa can involve the tissues themselves or can be a manifestation of a systemic disease. When you think about it like this, it kind of makes sense. On many occasions, diseases of the oral mucosa need to be looked at in the context of the other systems it shares a functional relationship with. Simone, how do these diseases impact their sufferers? Diseases of the oral mucosa tend to be chronic conditions and so when occur can be significantly debilitating for the individual affected. Conditions include autoimmune diseases that affect the oral mucosa, oral manifestations of systemic diseases such as inflammatory bowel diseases, oral cancer diagnosis, chronic pain conditions such as temporomandibular disorder, oral dysesthesia and trigeminal neuralgia. The clinical presentation and symptoms vary widely between individuals, so diagnosis and treatment can be challenging. I'll also add, it is an area that can give you many hints and clues about internal disease and other possible problems affecting our patient's health. Sometimes examination of the mouth is overlooked by health practitioners, and often a thorough look into the oral cavity with good lighting isn't done. And it's really amazing how much one can find if one looks properly. One of the best things I've learned by working alongside my oral medicine colleagues is how to do a proper comprehensive mouth examination. And as Simone has mentioned, being able to give relief to mouth symptoms can bring marked improvement to our patient's daily quality of life. This is very satisfying as a clinician. And sometimes subtle changes and simple measures make huge impacts. I, for one, am certainly looking forward to hearing about what can be done to help sufferers. Today's topic on mouth ulcers is particularly valuable for me, as I often find these a challenging general practice presentation, especially when recurrent. Perhaps we can start with what causes mouth ulcers. A mouth ulcer is the loss or erosion of the mucous membrane and can have many causes. Technically speaking, aphthous ulcers are recurring ulcers with no known cause. There are many conditions associated with aphthous ulcers. Aphthous-like ulcerations can be idiopathic or associated with hematinic deficiency, gastrointestinal or hematological disease. When recurrent ulcerations occur without an identifiable systemic cause, the diagnosis of recurrent aphthous stomatitis or ulcerative disease is made. After trauma, this is the most common oral mucosal lesion and is characterised by the periodic eruption of painful, solitary or multiple ulcerations of the oral mucosa. It sounds as though we are ready for our first skin tip. When recurrent ulcerations occur without an identifiable systemic cause, the diagnosis of recurrent aphthostomatitis disease can be made. It is characterised by periodic eruption or painful, solitary or multiple ulcerations of the oral mucosa. How common is recurrent aphthostomatitis, also known as RAS? RAS is quite common, actually. This condition is estimated to occur in approximately 10 to 20% of the population at some stage in their life, where it usually presents in the first two decades of life, and the occurrence usually becomes less frequent after the third decade. Most commonly, the cause is unclear in the majority of RAS, and RAS is the commonest diagnosis for most oral ulcer cases. We therefore consider that in the majority of patients, the cause is idiopathic. 
There are several potential triggers or associations, however. Multiple factors are thought to trigger attacks, including genetics, disorders of the immune systems, stress, hormonal factors including outbreaks at certain times during the menstrual cycle, trauma, and irritants including certain foods and toothpastes. We do find that younger patients and females are more likely to have RAS, and a family history is not uncommon. I've heard that iron deficiency can cause RAS. Is that true? Yes, it can be associated. And as such, we typically screen for underlying nutritional deficiencies, especially iron and B12 and folate. They can be associated with other autoimmune factors such as connective tissue diseases and inflammatory bowel conditions, including celiacs and various infections too. Many times we find no underlying causes. Most likely, there's an underlying genetic predisposition to RAS that has somehow been triggered. So what do these ulcers look like on examination? Clinically, recurrent aphthous ulcerations are round or oval shallow ulcers with a yellowish-grey fibrin pseudomembrane surrounded by a red halo. The labial and buccal mucosal tissues, that's the lining of the lips and cheeks, are the most frequently affected sites. This can be aggravated by crunchy, spicy, acidic foods, and certain drinks can make swallowing, eating or speaking uncomfortable. In practice, I've seen a great variation in the size and shape of aphthous ulcers. Is that typical? Yes, there can be some variation with how RAS presents. In fact, based on this, RAS can be classified into three different forms, minor, major and hepatiform. The minor type is the most common form. The ulcers are less than one centimetre in diameter, can be multiple or single, and often shallow and symmetrically located, lasting approximately 7 to 10 days. These tend to heal without scarring, and the majority of patients report 1 to 6 lesions when they occur and few recurring episodes in a 12-month period. How about the major type? In the major type, the ulcers are large and generally more than 1 centimetre in diameter, are deep and extremely painful. This type can involve other sites of the tongue, hard and soft palates, and the palatoglossal and palatopharyngeal arches. They can be quite debilitating and interfere with speech and eating, and so when severe, patients who experience this type may even require hospitalisation for IV supportive therapy. These ulcers take longer to heal and can last for weeks or even months and can scar. Due to their appearance, they can present clinically like a vesicular bullous disorder, such as mucous membrane pemphigoid or pemphigus, granulomatous disease, such as sarcoidosis or Crohn's disease, or even squamous cell carcinoma. And so many are biopsied because of this reason. And how about the final type, herpetiform? Given the name, does this mean they are caused by herpes viruses? So in this type, they resemble HSV-related ulcers, hence the name, but are not caused by the herpes virus. This is the rarest type and present as multiple ulcers that can have a crop-like appearance, and up to 100 can occur at a time. They look similar to the minor variant, but just smaller. The ulcers often coalesce to form a large lesion with irregular margins. These tend to take approximately 7 to 10 days to heal. How should we approach a diagnostic workup in RAS? I think the most important thing to do in these patients is actually to take a thorough history and detailed clinical examination and then do tests according to the features found. 
A typical history would be looking to determine severity of symptoms, other organ involvement, any potential disease associations, any potential irritants, any underlying hormonal variations, any stressors, a family history, age of onset, supplements and medications that could be triggers, and any other comorbidities or coexisting illnesses. These factors alongside the clinical examination then determine the extent of the testing we do. Sometimes the patient doesn't have any ulcers on that particular day, so having a photo they can bring in may help, but the history is particularly important for these patients anyway. If there is an ulcer, we always do a swab to rule out infection, particularly herpetic and other viral infections, but also we would check for candida and bacterial infections if we thought there were signs to suggest these. Are there any blood tests we should consider? Yes, a typical screen includes hematinic and nutritional markers, most importantly iron, but also vitamin B12 and folate, an anti-nuclear antibody to screen for lupus and connective tissue disorders, celiac serology and faecal calprotectin to screen for underlying inflammatory bowel disease. We would do a full blood examination to ensure there are no underlying hematological abnormalities and other tests if there are any features on history and exam to suggest rare associations, such as an HLA B51 for Betchett's disease. We would also consider patch testing if there seems to be a suggestion on history and ensure on our examination that there are no rough areas of teeth or fillings material triggering continuing trauma. How do we diagnose RAS? Diagnosis is generally made via the presented history and the clinical presentation. Biopsy is usually not indicated but can be performed if the presentation is not typical or to exclude other conditions. What other possible differentials should we consider? Common causes of oral ulceration other than RAS are reactive causes due to acute or chronic trauma such as mechanical thermal or chemical trauma, including medications, infective causes from viruses, bacteria or fungus, immunologically driven by underlying systemic conditions, neoplasias, and finally ischemia, such as necrotizing sialometaplasia. The mucosal turnover should occur in less than 10 days. Therefore, any persistent ulcer that has been present for greater than two weeks should be referred to an oral medicine specialist or maxillofacial surgeon for biopsy. It sounds as though we're ready for another skin tip. Any persistent ulcer that's been present for greater than two weeks should be referred to a specialist with expertise in oral medicine for consideration of a biopsy. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma. 
and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. We've touched on a number of systemic and autoimmune conditions that can be present with RAS. We might explore some of these further. Simone, could you touch on the link between inflammatory bowel disease and mouth ulcers? Inflammatory bowel disease includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The prevalence of IBD in Australia is approximately 300 in 100,000. Oral manifestations occur in 20 to 50% of these patients. This includes aphthous-like ulcers. Patients can also present with angular colitis and persistent submandibular lymphadenopathy. Oral symptoms are usually accompanied by gastrointestinal symptoms. Treatment of the systemic cause usually resolves the oral manifestation. On the subject of gastrointestinal disease, how about celiac disease? The clinical spectrum of celiac is varied. Aphthous-like ulcers of the oral mucosa do occur in patients with undiagnosed or poorly controlled celiac disease. This is often accompanied by gastrointestinal symptoms such as chronic diarrhea with abdominal distension, nausea, vomiting, fatigue and malaise. Speaking of systemic disease, does the great masquerade lupus come into oral disease at all? Yes, it does. Systemic lupus erythematosus is an autoimmune connective tissue disease where the immune system attacks its own tissues and it can affect the joints, the skin, the mucous membranes and other organs. It has wide-ranging severity spectrum, ranging from very mild to very severe. This is typically due to the organ systems involved and the degree of disease. Mouth ulcers from lupus are also a very common manifestation of this disease. They may also look exactly like the ones in recurrent stomatitis. Does SLE just cause RAS in the oral mucosa, or can it affect the oral mucosa in different ways? There are three major categories of lesions in the oral cavity of patients with lupus. Firstly, the direct involvement of lupus lesions in the mouth. Secondly, oral involvement due to Sjogren syndrome. And thirdly, oral lesions due to the oral effects of lupus medications. For the first type, the direct involvement of the oral cavity by lesions of lupus in the mouth, there are two types of these lesions. The most common type are the ones that do not correlate at all with activity of the disease. These are typically painless, with minimal defining characteristics, often red or white or both, shallow apathy. The second less common type are due to active disease and have a more characteristic red ulcer with a white halo and white radiating lines, and may or may not be painful. These most often occur inside the cheeks, on the hard palate, or the lower lip. Clues to suggest an underlying diagnosis of SLE is that the lesions might be on the hard palate or cheeks rather than the tongue, have a distinct white halo, and may be painless even though they look like they should be. Painful ones can be very difficult to distinguish from RAS, and thus why we screen our RAS patients for a possible associated connective tissue disease. Thanks, Laura. Let's shift over to a much rarer condition, Betchett's. Laura, can you please tell us what this condition is and how it presents? 
Yeah, sure, Aaron. Batchett's disease is indeed rare. However, the commonest presentation in those with this disease is painful aphthous ulcers, just like in RAS. The mouth ulcers typically begin as small, raised, round lesions in the mouth that quickly turn into painful ulcers, tend to last one to three weeks, and also tend to recur. Is Betchett's usually limited to the oral mucosa, or can it affect the rest of the body? Good question, Sarah. Although Betchett's commonly affects the oral mucosa, it is actually a multi-system disorder causing blood vessel inflammation, that is vasculitis, and diagnosis is made by having certain major or minor criteria. Other typical sites of inflammation include genital ulcers, eye inflammation, skin lesions, and joint, digestive, or even brain inflammation due to the vasculitis. Several genes have been found to be associated, and certain geographical areas are represented more commonly, typically countries part of the ancient Silk Road, giving Betchett's its other name, the Silk Root Disease. Most commonly, it's found in people from Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Israel, Japan, Korea, and northern China, but includes other countries in the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and East Asia. How is Betchett's diagnosed? We typically make a diagnosis using defined criteria, as there are no pathognomonic laboratory tests. We also often check for a specific HLA type, HLA-B51, and ask or check whether there's any pathogy, which is when one gets disease in an injured area. This is typically done by pricking the skin with a needle and then seeing if disease develops there, usually a red papule or pustule over the next few days. We tend to use the international study group criteria, where to diagnose Betchett's there must be recurrent aphthous ulceration of at least three episodes in any 12-month period, plus any two of the following. Recurrent genital ulcers, typical eye lesions of anterior or posterior uveitis or retinal vasculitis, skin lesions, either erythema nodosum, papulopustular or pseudofolliculitis lesions with acneiform nodules, and lastly, a pathogy test interpreted by the clinician at 24 to 48 hours. Betchett's disease thus is something we consider in a patient with more severe RAS and clusters of other symptoms and signs with certain geographical and racial backgrounds. Thanks, Laura. Shifting to a different cause of mouth ulcers, Simone, can you please talk us through some infective causes we should consider or exclude? So infections of the oral mucosa, either viral, bacterial, fungal, can present as oral ulcerations. The most common viral cause is largely attributed to the human herpes viruses, including herpes simplex virus 1 and 2 and varicella zoster virus. Diagnosis is largely based on clinical presentation. Herpes simplex virus ulcers are usually painful, small, such as a few millimetres, shallow, round lesions, and that originate from vesicles that are surrounded by a red halo and can coalesce, commonly found on keratinized oral mucosa. Secondary infection of varicella zoster virus is less common. Ulcers are similar in presentation to herpes simplex virus ulcers, but they have a unilateral distribution and most likely occur in an immunocompromised individual. Less common are bacterial and fungal infections. Among them, the most common of those is Treponema pallidum, 
or syphilis. Syphilis can have a non-specific clinical presentation and can mimic other diseases. On the subject of herpes, a really common general practice presentation I come across is when a patient presents with what looks to be a classical presentation and they've been started on empirical treatment and we've taken a swab, yet the swab comes back as negative. Does that mean that they therefore have RAS? The testing of the oral mucosa with swabs for infection isn't foolproof. The sensitivity is not always 100%. And if clinical nous suggests the infection, then consider clinical nous comes first. Shifting back to RAS and presuming we've made the diagnosis of this condition, Laura, what general measures can we take to lessen the severity of symptoms? It's a good question, Aaron, because we always start with general measures in our treatment approaches. And so it's important to start by maintaining good oral hygiene and avoiding trauma by using soft toothbrushes, waxed tape-style dental floss, avoiding irritants, sharp and acidic food, and avoiding alcohol-containing mouthwashes. We guide patients on the toothpaste that may help, including sodium laurel sulfate-free ones. We also often will try improving the pH in the mouth using a mouthwash with bicarbonate of soda and sea salt. How else can we manage RAS? Management of RAS is based on symptomatic relief and depends on the frequency and severity of the lesions. Often in the minor type, treatment may not be necessary if the pain is tolerable and doesn't disrupt daily function. Treatment is largely topical, using over-the-counter products such as benzocaine 10% in patients that have minor outbreaks per year. Local topical steroids are appropriate for patients that have frequent or severe episodes. Systemic therapies are reserved for severe or refractory lesions. As Simone has mentioned already, pain control is the mainstay of treatment and we try various topical anaesthetic agents, including 2% lignocaine liquid and viscous preparations. Topical steroids are our mainstay first-line treatments for mild to moderate RAS, and we encourage patients to start them as soon as an outbreak starts occurring. We will either rely on dexamethasone 2mg tablets crushed into solution, used in a swish and spit method, three to four times a day, ensuring the patient doesn't swallow the solution, or topical steroid creams or ointments, usually potent ones such as clobetazole propionate 0.05% ointment, often up to four times a day in acute flares. It sounds as though we're ready for our final skin tip. Management of RAS is primarily based on symptomatic relief. Local topical steroids are appropriate for patients that have frequent or severe episodes. Systemic therapies are reserved for severe or refractory cases. On the subject of systemic therapies, is there a role for oral corticosteroids in RAS? Yes, there can be. For more severe episodes, we may need a short course of oral steroids, but this is only a short-term solution, typically for around five days or so. As specialists in this area, what therapies might you use for more severe or complex presentations? For patients with more complex and frequent disease, we typically use topical measures and systemic treatments. Some of the first trialled options may be oral colchicine, starting at low doses and working up slowly so that gastrointestinal side effects are not too severe. Dapsone is also something we often find useful. 
but we ensure that the appropriate screening tests of G6PD enzyme levels and haemoglobin are checked beforehand, and then that patients are adequately monitored. Another treatment we typically trial is pentoxifiline, starting at 400 milligrams and working up to three tablets a day. Other options include tetracycline antibiotics, such as doxycycline, and nicotinamide for their anti-inflammatory effects. Immunosuppressant and immunomodulating agents and some biologic agents have also been reported, but these are typically difficult to access and can be very expensive, and we don't tend to use these for these patients unless very severe. Lastly, how does RAS overlap with other areas of dermatology? It's a good question, Annalise. There are many areas of overlap, and in fact, Simone and I run a clinic specifically for patients with both oral mucosal and dermatological diseases for this very reason. Probably the commonest other areas to check when one has oral mucosal disease are the other mucous membranes, particularly the genitals. There are several disorders that affect both, including RAS, lichen planus, immunobullous diseases such as pemphigus and pemphigoid conditions, and lots of other diagnoses too. We have many patients in our clinic that have pemphigus vulgaris, and thus we look for the typical other areas involved in this disorder, looking for erosions and crusts and flaccid tender blisters on the body, the scalp, around the nails, and around the genitals. We also check the eyes in our patients, which may also be affected in the inflammatory diseases that affect the mouth. In lichen planus, we always also do a thorough check of the skin, the perineum, the scalp, and the hair follicles and nails. The findings in the mouth are typically not aphthous ulcers alone, but sometimes all of the mucosal disorders we see can start with apathy or have apathy as part of the clinical presentation. Patients with large apathy with a certain shaggy appearance and bowel symptoms may have features to suggest inflammatory bowel disease, most commonly Crohn's, and overlap with other dermatological findings such as erythema nodosum, blistering lesions, or even painful ulcers on the skin such as pyoderma gangrenosum. Laura, I think you might have given our listeners a sneak peek for part two. In part two, we'll explore lichen planus further, alongside Sjogren's and possible presentations of malignancy. That concludes our first episode on oral mucosal disease. Thank you, Simone and Laura, for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. Thanks so much, Aaron, Sarah and Annalise. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. We would like to thank our co-host, Dr. Aaron Robinson, and the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.